Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is debut fiction author Paul Rosalie, who's here to clear up a few things about his writing and his life in the wild. Paul is a naturalist, author, and award-winning wildlife filmmaker who specialized in the Western Amazon for nearly a decade. Along with running a conservation project that uses tourism to support rainforest conservation, Paul's work has taken him to some of the last dark places on the globe. As an author, he states his mission is to blend adventure and conservation with the aim of reaching a broader audience and including more people in an ecological call to arms. His nonfiction work, entitled Mother of God, An Extraordinary Journey into the Uncharted Tributaries of the Western Amazon, has earned substantial critical acclaim. His debut fiction novel, which is called The Girl and the Tiger, just released last month to exceptionally high praise, having been described as an updated version of The Jungle Book. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Paul. Thank you so much for making time to join me today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, looking at your site, your professional life, I, I kind of have to ask where you are right now and what else is on your schedule for the day, because it, 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 if it doesn't sound like Indiana Jones saving the wild in his residence, I'm not sure I'll believe you. <laughs> um, I'm actually in Virginia somewhere, and <laughs> I'm, on a, I'm, on, I'm on this national book tour, so I've just been in like planes and trains and hotel rooms, but... I've been I've been away for the for the from the jungle for the first time in a long time, so it's uh it's starting to get to me. I had to take my first Uber the other day. Oh, how was that? Pretty strange. Yeah. I mean, it was it wasn't that hard, but I just it was funny because the the driver turned around and he goes, "You've never taken an Uber before," and I was like, "Man, I've been <laughs> I've been in the jungle my whole adult life." Yeah, I'm just now back in civilization, brother. Now, yeah. When I heard about your debut novel, I I immediately knew I wanted to have you on the show and talk about it. Uh, I, I've only recently gotten to start the novel myself, and it's an incredible piece. For readers who Thank are new you. to you and this story, what do you want them to know about the girl and the tiger? They say write the book that you always wanted to read, and I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit that I, I love this book. I was just listening to the the audio book version of it, and and I was just kind of enjoying it. But growing up, um, you know, when I first read Jungle Book, I didn't like that the tiger was the bad guy, and you know, just there was a bunch of other complaints I had about it, but I loved adventure stories. I love that classic style adventure, you know, a journey and everything. And I wanted to bring people through that. My my work for the last 10 years has been with these migrating endangered tigers. And of course, in India, you have so much, such a huge population. So forests have become these little islands and, and the wildlife like elephants and tigers, they're really faced with trying to survive in this ocean of, of human development. Wow. And so I was struggling with how to tell people that story, like how to bring people into that, you know, and not just give them facts and figures. Like I could have done it nonfiction, but I wanted to bring people on an emotional level through this, like to really connect with these animals and, and show them what they go through. And uh, for years I was struggling with this because I had all these incredible encounters and I, I had all these stories and, and all this field work. And then it really actually came together because, you know, the lead character of this, of this story is a girl named Isha. And in real life, um, I met a girl named Isha. Her parents actually came to the Amazon with me from, they came, traveled from India and they spent some time in the jungle with me. But uh, she just had this incredible connection to wildlife and to animals. And she's always rescuing squirrels and birds and, you know, taking care of them and re-releasing them 
And she contacted me when she was about 15 years old and sent me this email. And the email, I still have it. It said, it said, I have a question about a tigress. And in the email, she was determined. She'd found out that a mother tigress had gone missing. And, she, and there were these two cubs that were orphaned. And, and she was very, very practical about it. She goes, I need to, you know, you're the wildlife guy. You're the jungle man. I need to know <laughs> yeah. what do I feed them? Where do I bring them? And, and how do I release them? She had all these questions, but it was just no one else would ever think of taking on that responsibility. Mm-hmm. But she right. would. She did. And that that really turned into this story. And, that, you know, that people, you know, everyone keeps saying, yeah, it is. It's a novel, of course. But I know most of the characters in this book in real life. You know, I've, I've really I really most most of what happens in this book is, is is some sort of representation of things that have happened. And I just I just think that, you know, it's, it's exciting to have sort of an updated version of the jungle book. You know, tigers aren't the bad guys. Tigers are the refugees. The jungle's been cut back instead of a little boy. It's a little girl. And it's like. This is the story of you read this book and you come out of it with an understanding of, of conservation in India today. And it's really the story of what's going on on our planet right now as we continue to lose habitat and as wildlife diminishes. So I think it's I think it's an important story for our time. Now, did you have any any concerns about writing a strong female protagonist from another culture from your own? And, and how did you deliberately instill, I guess, the necessary experiences and perspectives into that writing genius to make sure Isha was a representation of herself? I, I didn't. I've lived in India for over a decade. My wife is from India, so so I, I consider myself an honorary Indian. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing was that writing the character of Isha was so easy because in real life, um, I really, I was really just, you know, just like with the tigers and the elephants, I would literally, you know, there's, there's, there's one day where this, I was writing and there was an elephant beside me and we were in the forest and he was just hanging out and he was grazing and he kept trying to steal my notebook. And I was, I was making, I was making observations on, you know, what his eyelashes looked like mm-hmm. and the, the color of his eyes and, and the little hairs on his head, just trying to take down all of that reality. So I could, I could incorporate it into the book. And, uh, you know, it was, it was the same thing with, with writing Isha. I mean, you know, we would go on adventures and she came as an intern um, when she was 16 and she, she was with me in the jungle. And it was like, again, she just has this explosive, unbelievable passion for wildlife. And she has this ability to make the people around her change. You know, she'll, she'll her compassion creates change. You know, the, I, I, I once, you know, showed her this quote from uh i think it was from the razor's edge where it says you know you throw you throw a stone into the pond and the universe ripples and it's just it's just what amazed me was that the voice of this young woman could influence all the adults around her and so i really was just grabbing these little gems from from Mm -hmm. real life and just sticking them into the book yeah you know it's it sounds like a, a lot like uh I guess my, my experience writing crime, right? I, I kind of accidentally spent 10 years researching books that you get to write from almost personal experience, right? Yeah. How did you get into this profession as a, a naturalist and, and wildlife conservationist? Did you always want to explore, preserve, and influence, or did this kind of happen accidentally? No, it, it, was, it was very much not accidental. Um, when I was a kid, I just... I mean, from the time I was pretty much a toddler, I just had this connection to wildlife, you know, in the nature versus nurture question. I don't, I don't know what the answer is because it was, it was both. I was crazy about wildlife. Like on the weekends, what I wanted to do was for my parents to take me to, to the forest. I wanted to go explore streams. I wanted to, 
catch snakes and frogs and stuff. And then as I got older, I started doing wilderness solos. I'd go out with my dog and I'd camp on the side of a mountain with one match and have to survive and, you know, stuff like that. And then by the time, by the time I was in my mid teens, I, I hated school and I wasn't doing very well at it. And I, I needed a change. So I, I actually dropped out of high school, got my GED and went straight into college by the time I was 17 and started saving my money and, and got myself to the Amazon. And, and that's really what my first book, the nonfiction book, Mother of God, is about, is that, you know, I went to the Amazon and instantly had the luck of falling in with these local people in an indigenous community. And while they were teaching me how to track, how to find wildlife, how to survive, the one thing that they didn't know about was snakes. And I'd been rescuing snakes and working with snakes since I was very young. So I sort of had this swap with them where I could teach them about snakes, which they were terrified of. And we started studying anacondas. And pretty soon I was bringing tourists from the U.S., which was helping the local guys make a living protecting their forests instead of being loggers or gold miners or something. Yeah. And it just it just never stopped. You know, that's that's what I'm passionate about. I mean, for me, on every level, I mean, you know, the jungle is my, my church, my mosque, my temple, and I, I love being out there. So the last 13 years of my life has been mostly in the jungle. And today in the Amazon, I work with an organization that I co-founded called Jungle Keepers, and we protect 30,000 acres of primary Amazon rainforest. We have a wow. team of rangers, and then with my ecotourism company, Tamandua Expeditions, we continue to provide a sustainable livelihood for the local people because we bring tourists from all over the world and they get to see the jungle and the local people get to sh get to show them you know their natural heritage which is really a beautiful exchange so it's uh and you know along along the way is wildlife rehab and and research and i've worked with discovery and national geographic and it's uh it's a it's a very difficult but wonderful way to live most folks you know in our modern society right focus on you know the financial rewards and not the intrinsic and they're on that aspect have a relatively easy existence in terms of, you know, making sure that they're going to eat this week. Um, but in taking a very different path, right. And kind of, as you, you mentioned that Uber ride earlier to, to <laughs> me and, and my contact with, you know, the, the, the limited wild you can, you can run into in the continental U S or your Uber ride is kind of their wild, you know, they, very few people actually get out of civilization and into a new experience where they don't have cell service. They don't have EMS services. They have to actually rely yeah. on themselves for truly survival. And I, I think we lose appreciation for what wild means and, and that it's a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, at, at this point I bring multiple study abroad groups to the, to the jungle. And so I, I'm sort of a guide and educator on, on a lot of people's wilderness experiences. And so I'm with people a lot of times for the first time in their life when they're, when they're disconnecting, because out there we're totally off the grid. We're deep in the Amazon and they don't have access to cell reception. You know, I have to explain to them that anything that goes wrong, <laughs> we all have to, we all have to help each other. There's no ambulance. Yeah. There's no help coming. Mm -hmm. It's um, just us. Yeah. It's just us. And it's honestly, it's refreshing. It's really refreshing. And it's it's crazy watching people realize that, you know, because at first they're like, oh, God, I'm not going to be able to call, you know, my, my mom. I'm not going to be able to call work. I'm, you know, what if this happens yeah. with that? And then after a few days, they're liberated and they're just so they don't even miss it. You know, they're, it's really amazing. I think that, you know, when, when people first are forced into that kind of disconnection, right, there's a tremendous discomfort because it's it's an unknown to them, literally, especially with yeah. younger people who've never been disconnected since they got their first phone and probably 
eight, nine, or 10. And yeah. I think, you know, that's not the, the nature of the human condition is not a connected existence. And when you disconnect and actually engage with nature, with the wild, with the earth, it, it is so incredibly cathartic. And I think we need a, much more of that in our soul. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I need, I need a very high level of it. I, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm away if I'm from the, if I'm away from the jungle for too long, I start, to, I start to feel pretty, pretty whacked out. I, I am very used to now waking up to the sounds of birds and going to sleep to the sound of frogs. And um, for me, I need it. For me, it's essential. And you know, everybody has a different level of that. Sure. In your opinion, in your experience and expertise, why are these dark places important, and and what must we do to try to protect and preserve them at this point? Well, there's two answers to that. And the first answer is that these dark places, these deep wilderness areas are important, first of all, because those are our ecosystems. The Amazon, for example, the, the big pieces of uncut Amazon, are those are the things that are producing the rain that's watering South America, that all of, you know, Brazil, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, all, the, all, the, all those South American countries depend on the Amazon to create their weather to create all the precipitation, not to mention natural resources, medicines, timber, wildlife products, the rivers that they navigate on and that they drink from. I mean, there's, you know, the sort of phys chemical, physical, economic reason why we need intact ecosystems. Everything we have at the end of the day comes from that, you know? I mean, our civilizations came up, you know, utilizing natural products. That, that's really, at the end of the day, that, that's, that's all we got. And when you live in the jungle, you see that those... You know, I grew up, you think of a forest, there's a forest, and in the forest are animals. But when you get to the jungle, it teaches you that everything is connected. And, you know, it's the bats and the birds and the insects that are pollinating these flowers and carrying seeds and creating the ecosystem. It's all tied together. And that without those, without those pollinators and seed carriers, the jungle couldn't exist. And without the top predators like jaguars or tigers or you know, those, those animals are keeping regulation over everything. They're, they're keeping, maintaining balance. And so once you see it like that, the destruction of nature becomes even more horrifying because we're, we're, we're literally losing what keeps us alive. And so that's, that's the first part of the answer because that's, you know, that's the part where it's, you know, like the Carl Sagan quote, no matter what you're interested in, it's not going to happen if you can't breathe the air and drink the water. Yes. So we need it. But the second part is that, I think that sort of what you were saying, that there is this deeper value, a more spiritual thing where it's important to us to feel small, to be a part of nature. We were not supposed to be a dominating force and that, that destroys the places we live in. It's, I think that most people are comforted when they see, you know, a nature documentary like Planet Earth, where they show you these beautiful, exotic locations or even go out in your backyard. I mean, I'm in Virginia right now and this morning, the mist on the hills and all of this crazy beautiful, beautiful right. forest in the blue ridge mountains it's just we 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 need nature on an emotional spiritual level and i think that knowing that there's huge parts of the of the globe that are untouched i think is very comforting for a lot of people even if you're a even if you're a stockbroker living in the middle of the city i think that some, there's some little part of everyone's brain that that likes to know that there's places like that mm -hmm. and i think that that's more important than we think 
I spoke with Beth Branning a few months ago about her work as the chief strategist at, at San Diego Zoo Global and how she helped shift that entity from a zoo that did conservation work to a conservation organization that also happens to run a zoo. How uh-huh. do you see the relationship between zoos and conservation and, and what can urban bound listeners do to, to get involved? I'm not, I'm not actually, I don't think I can provide an expert opinion on that one, but I, I've lately, there's a lot of this, a lot of really big, like anti-zoo movement where people are like, you know, free the animals, it's inhumane, all this stuff. And, and sure, if you're talking about like a little roadside wildlife park, yes, you know, you see animals kept in inhumane places, but I was just at the St. Louis Zoo and, you know, the Cincinnati Zoo, I mean, this is the Bronx Zoo was such an influence for me growing up. And I think that zoos are tremendous, tremendous education things. Cause let's face it, most people, um, I think, I think it's, it's worth it. They're, they're ambassadors for their species. And, you know, I don't know if I'd be doing what I, what I do if I hadn't, if it wasn't for the Bronx zoo, I think zoos are really important. Yeah. I think it's a lot easier for people of all ages, but especially younger, you know, more influenced folks to, to appreciate, admire, and become interested in something they can, it, it, you can't touch the tiger, but you can at least see it in, in real life. Um, yeah. And, and it's hard to appreciate something that never really becomes real to you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you can, you can see stuff all day on screens. I, I just recently had this, you know, illustrated for me. I was looking at a, a surfing account on Instagram and it was these guys surfing these monster waves that were like 30 feet tall. And I, yeah. I looked at it and I went, you know, I could do that. I said, come on. <laughs> I was like, and then yeah. a few weeks later, I, I was around some big waves myself that were probably half the size of the ones I'd seen in the video. But when you see it in real life, yes, there's nothing like it. Cause I said, Oh my God, that power of that wave. Mm-hmm. And I said, there's no way, you know, I, I it kind of put me in my place. And I think with wildlife, you can watch, you know, nature documentaries all day long. It's whatever. But when you actually see, I mean, I, I remember being at the zoo and the the kid next to me waved at one of the gorillas and the gorilla waves back. Oh, and it was so like cool. everyone in the room just stopped. Everyone got chills. And it was, you know, there's a piece of glass between you, but you're, you're interacting with basically this big, hairy, almost human. And it's just, it changes your whole perspective. And yeah, when you see mm-hmm. the power of a tiger up close, there's nothing like it. There's just nothing, nothing can substitute that. One of the primary themes of this show is to help writers incorporate greater authenticity in their writing, regardless of genre. And for me personally, I, I think I'm the most effective when I'm you know, most focused and inspired. And I wonder what your thoughts are about how this uh, new release, The Girl and the Tiger, can help provide aspiring authors with authentic characters, new perspectives, and inspiration to write their own story. Yeah, I think um, for me, going out and spending deep and intimate amounts of time in the jungle is, is very important. I think that if I bring anything to, you know, whatever I offer in my writing comes from the fact that I live out there, that it comes from experience. Um, and I know that when I read a book, for instance, when I read Jack London, when I read something like call of the wild or even Kipling, I remember there's when I was reading jungle book, uh, recently I was rereading it and he was talking about, how the, you know, the elephants were shifting and standing in the yard and, and how they were with their trunks, they were, they were throwing dirt on their backs and how that in between their ears and all the little hairs and how there's all nuts and seeds and, and, and leaves. And when I was writing my book, 
and I was living with elephants in the forest, I remember seeing them doing that and seeing all the, all that, you know, forest litter on, on the mm-hmm. elephant's head. And I said, my God, you know, Kipling wasn't writing this as someone who's making up a story sitting in an office. He, he actually spent time in the jungle and that, and that comes through the page. And when you read Jack London, you say this, this guy was out there, man, because he's describing what the ropes feel like and what, you know, what the mm-hmm. chill of morning felt like. And it's like, that is the stuff that you, you can't make that up. You can't just create that you have you have to at some level i think immerse yourself in what you're writing no matter what kind of writing it is yeah i think there's a big difference in the way that uh, experience comes across the page versus research and i don't think one is a substitute for the other yeah i've i've read i won't say which one but i read a <laughs> there's a best-selling there's a best-selling book about the amazon it was a novel mm-hmm. And a few people told me I had to read it because they were like, oh, you know, you're, you're the Amazon man. You got to read this book. And I, I read this novel about the Amazon. And I, I was just like, oh, this is all research. I could yeah. just tell instantly that this, this person had, had researched a lot about the Amazon, but it just it was not from experience. It was it was someone at home's best guess about what it might be like out there. But I could tell they hadn't actually been there. Now, for authors who specifically want their fiction to raise awareness of a project or serve as a call to action, what advice and counsel would you have for someone embarking on that type of fictional project, much like the girl and the tiger? Well, um, it's a, it's a, I think it's a really powerful force, first of all, because again, nonfiction, nonfiction, you read it and it's, it's reporting. It, it is what it is. But when you take fiction, something like, um, I know the, my favorite example of, of, a novel that's about a real life issue is um, a thousand splendid sons. The one that's, it's like you're following the life of this Afghani woman and all the things that she goes through. And by the time you finish this book, I remember closing the book and just going, Oh my God, like I never, I never thought about what it's like over there and how, you know, even in the U S what we hear about terrorism and you'll hear people like, you know, put all of Afghanistan into the same category. And then you go, Oh my God, no, these these people are victims of the terrorism that we're under too. And it's Absolutely, like, it just, yeah. it just opens your whole mind. And uh, you know, that author obviously has deep intimate connections mm-hmm. with that part of the world and knows how things work. So I think, you know, making, making a connection with, with the issue. I mean, you, again, you got, you got to walk the walk. Um, for me, it was, it was embedding with the wildlife and the tribal people and, and being in the forests of India for 10 years that I think gave me the, the authority, the confidence, the, you know, whatever the, the, you know, the idea that I could, I could, I could tell this story. But I think that, I think that so much of our, so much of what we read and what we watch as movies is just, it's just entertainment, you know, it's just people shooting each other, whatever else. And that's great. That's fine. But then you have something, uh, I I mean, when I was growing up, I loved the movie Blood Diamond with DiCaprio Mm -hmm. and Jaimon Huntsu. And that was, you know, you could take that as an action movie. You could just watch it and be like, damn, that was a good adventure. But that was very much about the diamond trade and Africa and showing you, you know, the injustices. And I think that that's so powerful because, again, you're hitting people on an emotional level. And that's what fic- that's where fiction has a power that other, other mediums don't have. I wonder if most writers are, are also pretty avid readers. And I, I wonder if you have yeah. a, a favorite fictional uh, detective or investigator that you read or watch in, you know, books, TV, or film. Ooh. Um, I, well, I mean, I, I, I have to say the original Sherlock Holmes stories, mm-hmm. I love them. I absolutely love them. I grew up, I, I was severely dyslexic growing. I mean, I still am, but 
Um, growing up, it took me very long to learn how to read and, and to be able to read co- like confidently and fluently and enjoy it. So when I was a child, my parents read to me a lot, probably until the age of about 12 or 13, I was read too. So they read me Lord of the Rings, Sherlock Holmes, oh, wow. Call of the Wild, yeah. all that stuff. Um, you, so you yeah, Sherlock fantastic Holmes. parents. Oh my God. The dedication, you know, like at night yeah. they were at work all day and then they had to make dinner and take care of the kids and make sure we did homework. And then they read to us for at least an hour. It's just like, Oh my God. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. No, they had wonderful, wonderful parents that always, always supported all the crazy things that I am interested in. But yeah, I would, I would say the original Sherlock Holmes was, was probably my favorite for investigators for sure. Now I asked this last question of all the authors who come on the show, mostly because it's fun for me. Based on that last answer, God forbid it should come to pass, Paul. But if you wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered, what fictional <laughs> investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you assign your own homicide? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> let me think. Who would I want avenging my homicide? I don't know. It's probably, it's probably you want someone that can, that can kick ass. You want someone that can actually get revenge, but then you need someone brilliant enough to actually figure out who killed you. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. You'd have to like probably mix up like, you know, I'd say like the Dr. House from the TV show house mixed with like Wolverine, you know, you need, you need one guy who's brilliant and someone that can shred them once you find them. That's perfect. I don't, I don't need to be murdered, man. I got a lot of stuff I got to do. So I want revenge. Yeah, the uh, the task force has become a, a really popular option to that question. Yeah. I, I greatly appreciate your time and your expertise, Paul. I'm really excited to finish this book. I greatly, genuinely appreciate you writing this and putting this out for consumption based on your experience, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And I just, as I'm, as I'm going, I just want everybody to know that we're actually, everything I do, I try to connect people to conservation. So with this book, the publisher, Owl Hollow Press, we're actually each book we sell, we're actually donating a dollar towards tiger conservation. So as you learn about these migrating tigers, we're actually trying to create a tiger reserve, like a way station, so we can actually have real world action coming out of this book. So thank you. You've been listening to Writers on the Beach, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed filmmaker, naturalist, and author Paul Rosalie. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.